This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Jennifer Acker Milo Koleski Alexandria Rodriguez and Nancy Wilson Thank all of you so, so much for supporting and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, um, these names that I just read are brand new patrons of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a website where you can go and directly support creators of the work that you like. So if you would like to be a part of making this show and have your name read in the opening credits um, of the next show after you do, then just go to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donate even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. Again, if you want to be a part of this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy 
is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight, um, I have some stories, multiple stories, from an author we all know, um, some stories that I have not read on the show before. And it's the Just So Stories by Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling, um, as many of you know, wrote The Jungle Book. And these are some short stories that he wrote all about how animals became how they are. So, tonight we're going to be reading three stories. Uh, The first one is How the Camel Got His Hump. The next one is How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin. And the last story is How the Leper Got His Spots. These are wonderful children's stories um, that he actually wrote for his own children when they would ask, why does a camel have a hump? Um, He wrote a story about it to, to tell them. And these stories, the just so stories, are what came out of that for him. These are really good for kids. If you have kids listening, um, definitely good stories to put on repeat if you ever loop this podcast to help you go to sleep and stay deep asleep. But I very much enjoyed reading these, so I hope you enjoy dozing off into a deep, deep slumber to them. So without further ado, The Just So Stories by Rudyard Kipling. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. In the beginning of years, when the world was so new and all, and the animals were just beginning to work for man, there was a camel, and he lived in the middle of a howling desert because he did not want to work. And besides, he was a howler himself. So he ate sticks and thorns and tamarisks and milkweed and prickles, most excruciating idle, and when anybody spoke to him, he said, Humph, just humph, and no more. Presently, the horse came to him on Monday morning, with a saddle on his back and a bit in his mouth, and said, Camel, oh camel, come out and trot like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the horse went away and told the man, Presently, the dog came to him with a stick in his mouth and said, Camel, O camel, come and fetch and carry like the rest of us. Humph, 
said the camel, and the dog went away and told the man. Presently the ox came to him, with the yoke on his neck, and said, Camel, O camel, come and plow like the rest of us. Hum, said the camel, and the ox went away and told the man. At the end of the day, the man called the horse and the dog and the ox together and said, Three, O three, I'm very sorry for you, with the world so new and all, but that humphing in the desert can't work, or he would have been here by now, so I'm going to leave him alone, and you must work double time to make up for it. That made the three very angry with the world so new and all. And they had a palaver, and an indaba, and a punjia, and a powwow on the edge of the desert. And the camel came chewing milkweed, most excruciating idol, and laughed at them. Then he said hump, and went away again. Presently there came along the jinn, in charge of all deserts, rolling in a cloud of dust. Jinns always travel that way, because it is magic. And he stopped to palaver and powwow with the three. Jinn of all deserts, said the horse, is it right for anyone to be idle, with the world so new and all? Certainly not, said the jinn. Well, said the horse, there's a thing in the middle of your howling desert, and he's a howler himself, with a long neck and long legs, and he hasn't done a stroke of work since Monday morning. He won't trot. Woo, said the gin, whistling, that's my camel, for all the gold in Arabia. What does he say about it? He says, humph, said the dog, and he won't fetch and carry. Does he say anything else? Only humph, then he won't plow, said the ox. Very good, said the gin. I'll humph him, if you will kindly wait a minute. The gin rolled himself up in his dust cloak and took a bearing across the desert, and found the camel most excruciatingly idle, looking at his own reflection in a pool of water. My long and bubbling friend, said the gem, was as I hear of you doing no work, with the world so new and all. Hum, said the camel. The gin sat down, with his chin in his hand, and began to think of great magic, while the camel looked at his own reflection in the pool of water. You've given the three extra work ever since Monday morning, all on account of your excruciating idleness, said the jinn, and he went on thinking magics with his chin in his hand. Hum, said the camel, I shouldn't say that again, 
if I were you, said the gin. You might say it once too often. Bubbles, I want you to work. And the camel said a hump again. But no sooner had he said it than he saw his back that he was so proud of, puffing up and puffing up into a great, big, lolloping hump. Do you see that? said the gin. That's your very own hump that you've brought upon your very own self by not working. Today is Thursday. And you've done no work since Monday, when the work began. Now you are going to work. How can I, said the camel, with this hump on my back? That's made a purpose, said the gin. All because you've missed those three days. You'll be able to work now, for three days without eating, because you can live on your hump. And don't you ever say, I never did anything for you. Come out of the desert and go to the three and behave. Hump yourself. And the camel humped himself, hump and all, and went away to join the three. And from that day to this, the camel always wears a hump. We call it a hump now not to hurt his feelings. But he has never yet caught up with the three days that he missed at the beginning of the world, and he has never yet learned how to behave. The camel's hum is an ugly lump, which, well, you may see at the zoo. But uglier yet is the hump we get for having too little to do. Kids and grown-ups, too if we haven't enough to do, ooh, we get the hum, Camellia's hum, the hum that is black and blue. We climb out of bed with a frowsly hat and a snarly, yarly voice. We shiver and scowl and we grunt and we growl at our bath and our boots and our toys. And there ought to be a corner for me and I know there is one for you. When we get the hum, Camellia's hum, the hum that is black and blue. The cure for this ill is not to sit still or frowst with a book by the fire, but to take a large hoe and a shovel also and dig till you gently perspire. And then you will find that the sun and the wind and the gin of the garden, too, have lifted the hum, the horrible hum, the hum that is black and blue. I get it as well as you, woo if I haven't enough to do, woo We all get hum, camellia's hum, kitties and grown-ups, too. How the rhinoceros got his skin. Once upon a time, on an uninhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a Parsi 
from whose hat the rays of the sun were reflected in true splendor. And the Parsi lived by the Red Sea with nothing but his hat and his knife and a cooking stove of the kind that he must particularly never touch. And one day he took flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things and made himself one cake which was two feet across and three feet thick. It was indeed a superior comestible. That's magic. And he put it on the stove because he was allowed to cook on that stove. And he baked it. And he baked it till it was all done brown and smelt most sentimental. But just as he was going to eat it, there came down to the beach from the altogether uninhabited interior one rhinoceros with a horn on his nose, two piggy eyes, and few manners. In those days, the rhinoceros's skin fitted him quite tight. There were no wrinkles in it anywhere. He looked exactly like Noah's Ark rhinoceros, but of course much bigger. All the same, he had no manners then, and he has no manners now, and he never will have any manners. He said, How? And the Parsi left that cake and climbed to the top of a palm tree with nothing on but his hat, from which the rays of the sun were always reflected in beautiful splendor. And the rhinoceros upset the oil stove with his nose, and the cake rolled on the sand, and he spiked that cake on the horn of his nose, and he ate it, and he went away, waving his tail to the desolate and exclusively uninhabited interior which abuts on the islands of Mazanderin, Socotra, and the promontories of the larger equinox. Then the Parsi came down from his palm tree and put the stove on its legs and recited the following sloka, which, as you have not heard, I will now proceed to relate. Them that takes cakes, which the Parsi man bakes, makes dreadful mistakes. And there was a great deal more in that than you would think because five weeks later there was a heat wave in the Red Sea and everybody took off all the clothes they had. The Parsi took off his hat but the rhinoceros took off his skin and carried it over his shoulder as he came down to the beach to bathe. In those days it buttoned underneath with three buttons and looked like a waterproof. He said nothing whatever about the Parsi's cake because he had eaten it all and he never had any manners then, since, or henceforward. He waddled straight into the water and blew bubbles through his nose leaving his skin on the beach. Presently, 
The Parsi came by and found the skin, and he smiled one smile that ran all around his face two times. Then he danced three times around the skin and rubbed his hands. Then he went to his camp and filled his hat with cake crumbs, for the Parsi never ate anything but cake and never swept out his camp. He took that skin, and he shook that skin, and he scrubbed that skin, and he rubbed that skin just as full of old, dry, stale, tickly cake crumbs and some burned currants as ever it could possibly hold. Then he climbed to the top of his palm tree and waited for the rhinoceros to come out of the water and put it on. And the rhinoceros did. He buttoned it up with the three buttons and it tickled like cake crumbs in bed. Then he wanted to scratch, but that made it worse. And then he lay down on the sands and rolled and rolled and rolled. And every time he rolled, the cake crumbs tickled him worse and worse and worse. Then he ran to the palm tree and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed himself against it. He rubbed so much and so hard that he rubbed his skin into a great fold over his shoulders and another fold underneath where the buttons used to be. But he rubbed the buttons off. And he rubbed some more folds over his legs. And it spoiled his temper, but it didn't make the least difference to the cake crumbs. They were inside his skin, and they tickled. So he went home, very angry indeed, and horribly scratchy. And from that day to this, every rhinoceros has great folds in his skin, and a very bad temper. All on account of the cake crumbs inside. But the Parsi came down from his palm tree, wearing his hat, from which the rays of the sun were reflected with more than wonderful splendor, packed up his cooking stove, and went away in the direction of Oratevo, Amygdala, the upland meadows of Anantarivo, and the marshes of Sonapa. This uninhabited island is off Cape Gardafui by the beaches of Socotra and the Pink Arabian Sea. But it's hot, too hot from Suez for the likes of you and me ever to go in a P and O and call on the Cape Parsi. How the leopard got his spots. In the days when everybody started fair, best beloved, the leopard lived in a place called the high veld. Remember, it wasn't the low veld, or the bush veld, or the sour veld. 
but the exclusively bare, hot, shiny Highvale, where there was sand and sandy-colored rock, and exclusively tufts and sandy yellowish grass. The giraffe and zebra, and the eland, and the kudu, and the hartebeest lived there, and they were exclusively sandy, yellow, brownish all over. But the leper, he was the exclusivest, sandiest, yellowish, brownest of them all, a grayish, yellowish, caddy-shaped kind of beast and he matched the exclusively yellowish, grayish, brownish color of the high vowel to one hair. This was very bad for the giraffe and the zebra and the rest of them, for he would lie down by a exclusively yellowish, grayish, brownish stone or clump of grass, and when the giraffe or the zebra or the eland or the kudu or the bushbuck or the bontibuck came by, he would surprise them out of their jumps and lives. He would indeed. And also, there was an Ethiopian with bows and arrows, an exclusively grayish, brownish, yellowish man he was then, who lived on the high veld with the leper, and the two used to hunt together. The Ethiopian with his bows and arrows and the leopard, exclusively with his teeth and claws, till the giraffe and the eland and the kugu and the quagga and all the rest of them didn't know which way to jump, best beloved. They didn't, indeed. After a long time, things lived forever so long in those days, they learned to avoid anything that looked like a leopard or an Ethiopian. And bit by bit, the giraffe began it, because his legs were the longest. They went away from the high bell. They scuttled for days and days till they came to a great forest, exclusively full of trees and bushes and stripy, speckly, patchy, blatchy shadows. And there they hid. And after another long time, what with standing half in the shade and half out of it, and what with the slippery, slidey shadows of the trees falling on them, the giraffe grew blotchy, and the zebra grew stripy, and the eland and the kudu grew darker, with little wavy gray lines on their backs, like bark on a tree trunk. And so, though you could hear them and smell them, you could very seldom see them. And then, only when you knew precisely where to look. They had a beautiful time in the exclusively speckly, spickly shadows of the forest, while the leopard and the Ethiopian ran about over the exclusively yellowish, grayish, reddish high veldt outside wondering where all their breakfasts and their dinners and their teas had gone. At last they were so hungry that they ate rats and beetles and rock rabbits, the leopard and the Ethiopian, and then they had the big tummy ache, both together, 
And then they met Bavia, the dog-headed, barking baboon, who was quite the wisest animal in all South Africa. Said the leper to Bavia, and it was a very hot day. Where has all the game gone? And Bavian winked. He knew. Said the Ethiopian to Bavian, Can you tell me the present habitat of the aboriginal fauna? That meant just the same thing, but the Ethiopian always used long words. He was a grown-up. And Bavian winked. He knew. Then said Bavian, the game has gone into other spots, and my advice to you, leopard, is to go into other spots as soon as you can. And the Ethiopian said, that is all very fine, but I wish to know whether the aboriginal fauna has migrated. Then said Bavian, the aboriginal fauna has joined the aboriginal flora because it was high time for change. And my advice to you, Ethiopian, is to change as soon as you can. That puzzled the leper and the Ethiopian, but they set off to look for the aboriginal flora. And presently, after ever so many days, they saw a great, high, tall forest full of tree trunks, all exclusively speckled and sprawled and spottled, dotted and splashed and slashed and hatched and cross-hatched with shadows. Say that quickly aloud, and you will see how very shadowy the forest must have been. What is this, said the leper, that is so exclusively dark and yet so full of little pieces of light? I don't know, said the Ethiopian, but it ought to be the aboriginal flora. I can smell giraffe, and I can hear giraffe, but I can't see giraffe. That's curious, said the leper. I suppose it is because we have just come out of the sunshine. I can smell zebra, and I can hear zebra, but I can't see zebra. Wait a bit, said the Ethiopian. It's a long time since we've hunted them. Perhaps we've forgotten what they were like. Fiddle, said the leper. I remember them perfectly on the high veil, especially their marrow bones. Giraffe is about 17 feet high, of exclusively fulvous golden yellow from head to heel and zebra is about four and a half feet high, of exclusively gray fawn color from head to heel. Um, said the Ethiopian, looking into the speckly, spickly shadows of the aboriginal flora forest. Then they ought to show up in this dark place, like ripe bananas in a smokehouse. But they didn't. 
The leopard and the Ethiopian hunted all day, and they could smell them and hear them, but they never saw one of them. For goodness sake, said the leopard at tea time, let us wait till it gets dark. This daylight hunting is a perfect scandal. So they waited till dark, and then the leopard heard something breathing sniffily in the starlight that fell all stripy through the branches. And he jumped at the noise, and it smelled like zebra, and it felt like zebra. And when he knocked it down, it kicked like zebra, but he couldn't see it. So he said, Be quiet, O oh, you person without any form. I am going to sit on your head till morning, because there is something about you that I don't understand. Presently he heard a grunt and a crash and a scramble, and the Ethiopian called out, I've caught a thing that I can't see. It smells like giraffe, and it kicks like giraffe, but it hasn't any form. Don't you trust it, said the leopard. Sit on its head till the morning, same as me. They haven't any form, any of them. So they sat down on them hard till the bright morning time. And then Leopard said, We'll have you at your end of the table, brother. The Ethiopian scratched his head and said, It ought to be exclusively a rich, fulvous, orange tawny from head to heel, and ought to be a giraffe. But it is covered all over with chestnut blotches. What of you at your end of the table, brother? And the leopard scratched his head and said, It ought to be exclusively a delicate grayish fawn, and it ought to be zebra, but it is covered all over with black and purple stripes. What in the world have you been doing to yourself, zebra? Don't you know, if you were on the high bell, I could see you ten miles off? You haven't any form. Yes, said the zebra, but this isn't the high bell. Can't you see? I can now, said the leopard, but I couldn't all yesterday. How is it done? Let us up, said the zebra, and we will show you. They let the zebra and the giraffe get up, and zebra moved away to some little thorn bushes where the sunlight fell all stripy, and giraffe moved off to some tallest trees where the shadows fell all blotchy. Now watch, said the zebra and the giraffe. This is the way it's done. One, two, three. And where's your breakfast? Leopard stare and Ethiopian stare but all they could see were stripy shadows and blotched shadows in the forest, and never a sign of zebra or giraffe. They had just walked off and hidden themselves in the shadowy forest. Hi, hi, said the Ethiopian. 
That's a trick worth learning. Take a lesson by it, leper. You show up in this dark place, like a bar of soap in a coal scuttle. Ho, ho, said the leper. Would it surprise you very much to know that you show up in this dark place, like a mustard plaster on a sack of coals? Well, calling names won't catch dinner, said the Ethiopian. The long and the little of it is that we don't match our backgrounds. I'm going to take Bavian's advice. He told me I ought to change. And as I have nothing to change except my skin, I'm going to change that. What to, said the leper, tremendously excited. To a nice, working, blackish-brownish color with a little purple in it and touches of slaty blue. It will be the very thing for hiding in hollows and behind trees. So he changed his skin then and there, and the leopard was more excited than ever. He had never seen a man change his skin before. But what about me, he said, when the Ethiopian had worked his last little finger into his fine new black skin? You take Bavian's advice, too. He told you to go into spots. So I did, said the leper. I went to other spots as fast as I could. I went to this spot with you, and a lot of good it has done me. Oh, said the Ethiopian. Bavian didn't mean spots in South Africa. He meant spots on your skin. What's the use of that, said the leper. Think of giraffe, said the Ethiopian. Or if you prefer stripes, think of zebra. They find their spots and stripes give them perfect satisfaction. Um, said the leper. I wouldn't look like zebra. Not forever, so. Well, make up your mind, said the Ethiopian. Because I'd hate to go hunting without you but I must if you insist on looking like a sunflower against a tar fence. I'll take spots then, said the leper, but don't make them too vulgar big. I wouldn't look like giraffe, not forever so. I'll make them with the tips of my fingers, said the Ethiopian. There's plenty of black left still on my skin. Stand over. Then the Ethiopian put his five fingers close together. There was plenty of black left on his new skin still. And pressed them all over the leper. And wherever his five fingers touched, they left five little black marks all close together. You can see them on any leopard's skin if you like, best beloved. Sometimes the fingers slipped and the marks got a little blurred. 
And if you look closely at any leopard now, you will see that there are always five spots on five fat little black fingertips. Now you are a beauty, said the Ethiopian. You can lie out on the bare ground and look like a heap of pebbles. You could lie out on the naked rocks and look like a piece of pudding stone. You can lie out on a leafy branch and look like sunshine sifting through the leaves. And you can lie right across the center of a path and look like nothing in particular. Think of that and purr. So they went away and lived happily ever afterward, best beloved. That is all. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.